as we are going to kind of tie up our Image of God series, um, I woke up this morning seeing the news about the shooting in Colorado Springs last night. Uh, some of you may not know, uh, but there was a, a, a shooting last night at a, at a club called Club Q. Uh, it's a LGBTQ uh, kind of club, and uh, five dead, 18 injured when, is what I saw this morning. I don't know if that's changed or not. Um, we would probably, we'll probably never know why that shooting happened. But I, I want to make a statement of lament. A statement um, that, that, that says we truly hurt when people in the world are hurt. Um, we may never know why that shooting happened, uh, especially as political as shootings are and how things get, get you know, who, who, just, who knows, and it's often even not told. Uh, but we could assume, I think safely assume, that that shooting happened because of a prejudice, right? Uh, because of the sin of partiality that in, for some reason, uh, the, the person who walked in there, 22-year-old young man who walked in there and opened fire, that there was some sort of, of, of prejudice towards uh, homosexual people. Um, so, I had not intended that to be kind of my opening illustration or thought today. Um, but upon seeing that, hitting that close to home, it made me go, you know, what I'm going to talk about today of us being created in the image of God and, 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 and bears, this, this really brings to light this reality. Most of us as humans know that we are created in the image of God. Most Christians know that we're created in the image of God, but we often fail to recognize the image of God in others. We fail to see because of th through a lens of looking at someone else's brokenness and someone else's sin and being able to look and see that they're an image bearer of God, that they are made in the image of God. And so here's my big truth for us as we start today. This is the main kind of theme that I want us to walk away with this sermon with today. And it's that our neighbors were made in the image of God for God and for God's glory. Our neighbors were made in the image of God for God and for God's glory. Two weeks ago, when I last preached, my big truth was this. You were made in the image of God for God and for God's glory. And, and kind of tying this series up, I wanted to handle how we think, must think about ourselves and the lives that we live and how we must then treat others, how much we must interact with others. Kind of our anchor in the Bible, our anchor text for this series has been Genesis chapter 1. And I, I want to read to you Genesis 1, I've read it just about every week. And so in the creation uh, uh, account in Genesis, we see this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so here, here becomes this, this reality that we've looked at the lens of being created in the image of God is that, that we are created beings. That, that God made us, he created us, and he did so in his, in his image. 
This is different, right? This is different. We see in, in the Genesis 1 account and 2, we see how the, uh, the birds and fish and, and the oceans and land and the separation between. The, we see everything else created, but not in the image of God as God would want them created. Rather, we see us created in the image of God, being image bearers. And male and female, he created them. We see this reality that you are either male or you are female. You, you, you are made for, for purpose. We've talked about the purposes that God ha- has for us to bring him glory and what that means through uh, multiplication, to, to, uh, to fill the earth by multiplying, what it means for reproduction. And at the end of the day, you are created in the image of God, either male and female. And male or female, you have equal dignity, value, and worth. But you're created in the image of God. And so with this reality... I want us to consider Jesus' words today. Uh, Jesus says this. We have multiple uh, accounts of this in the gospel, but I want to point out Mark's today. In, in, in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus said this, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, we've already, we've already talked about this in this series that when God created you, he created you with a heart, with a mind, with a, with a soul. That, he, that your soul isn't separated, right? It's, it's together in your body. God created you. And so as he created you, he created you with the purpose of loving God. And then verse 31, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so... This is often how we sum up Christianity, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second most important commandment, you would love your neighbor as yourself. And so this brings, this brings great meaning, great instruction on how we are to love and treat others. And so here's my first big idea. We should treat others with the respect, dignity, and worth that they have as fellow image bearers of God. I said, most of us know that we're created in the image of God, but we often fail to recognize the image of God in others. That's where the, the breakdown happens, right? This is not a new idea. This is actually a really old idea. Um, Clement of Rome uh, was he, he would have been alive when the apostles were alive. Uh, within about 100 years of Christ's death, uh, Clement of Rome said this. He said, You should do good and pay honor and reverence to man who's made in the image of God. Minister to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, clothing to the naked, hospitality to the stranger, and necessary things to the prisoner, and that is what is regarded as truly bestowed upon God. And so we see this reality uh, that has been in, in the church for 2,000 years that we should treat others with respect and dignity and worth because they also bear the image of Christ. We often don't look at, look, look at others the same as we look at ourselves. We give ourselves... Um, we, we, we normalize our sin, we normalize the things that we struggle with, and we look outward at others, and we demonize theirs. We do so to make us feel better about ourselves. 
And so when we see a crime like last night, that, that, that murder, you have to think that most of the time when that happens, there's a fixation on, on, on needing to, to eliminate people in order to take out some sort of, of evil or to, to impose some sort of evil. And, I mean, that's an extreme example. My, my opening introduction was actually I was going to talk about uh, teen teen suicide rates as relates to gender dysphoria right we've talked about that a lot we've talked about how hard it is to be a young person in in this world and I was going to talk about bullying and how bullying is a really big thing and when somebody struggles with gender dysphoria or they have some sort of struggle that that if you look and, and look at teenagers among their peers the type of bullying goes on but I was just reminded like this isn't a young people problem this is a sinfulness of humanity problem and so as we, we sit here today and kind of end this series of, okay, here's what we've learned about the image of God. Now, how do we act on it? What do we do with it? The thing that I want you to know is what we do with it. Number one, on the, uh, right off the very top, is to, to note that how we treat others matters. That we have to treat others with dignity and respect. And, and we have to be loving and kind. And you have to, have to see their worth. We can't look at others who are different than us and despise them and treat them poorly because of their differences, whether that's physical, emotional, or spiritual. We can't, we can't do that. We, we have to look at them and know that is an image bearer of God. No matter their difference of opinion, their different thoughts, no matter how poorly they think of us, no matter if they think that you're a bigot, it does not matter. It doesn't change the way in which you treat them. Okay, I want us to think about this, how we treat people on really kind of, in, in kind of two realms, right? The micro realm, like the people that you're actually around that you have close personal contact with, but also I want us to think of it through the macro kind of lens as well, in the macro realm of how does, how does this matter for all of humankind? Because, because both, things, both things matter. What's good for humanity matters. And so we're going to start at the... Uh, the micro, and when the micro, I want to start of uh, the people that we interact with, the strangers that we meet. Let's say, let's say you have a, a stranger, you meet them at the gas station, you meet them at Costco, um, you, you meet them out in public. How do you, tr- how you treat that person, the way in which you greet that person, you embrace that person, uh, matters. And so we're, we're, going, we're going to have that kind of contact with people who from the very second we run into them, we're going to know that we may believe differently about things, right? We may look at their badge and, and, and see that they have a girl name when they're clear, clearly a, a, a boy, right? We may see their personal pronouns and realize that their pronouns don't, don't match the gender in which they, that they, they were born with. And so we have to make the decision, how are we going to treat that person? So... Are we gonna Are we gonna use a harsh tone? Are we gonna be rude to them? Or are we gonna be kind? I mean, I, th- I think I think that I think that matters. I think I don't think we need to embrace and and, and uh, immediately kind of and embrace their sin and, and love their sin in order to love the person. I don't think that. I don't. But I think we ought to be kind, right? I'm gonna, I think we ought to be kind. I think we ought to be. Be, be loving, and then I think about acquaintances. I think about those that you may work with, that you share uh, a, a, a cubicle with. 
you share office space, not your, in your cubicle. Or maybe you do. I don't know. I think cubicle is the only one. Anyway, you, you share with that person. How do you treat them? Is there going through this some sort of, maybe it's a dysphoria. Maybe it's, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's some other sort of heterosexual sin. Like how you treat them in their sin matters. One, you can't just acquiesce to the winds of the culture. You can't just look at it and say what, what you're doing is best for you. If what they're doing, you clearly know is wrong for them. We're going to talk about this in a minute. What's the most loving thing to do? How to have that interaction. And then I want us to think about those that we love, right? Those that, that maybe it's your own child that that's, has this image of God, not a, see, a broken view of their image and who God made them to be in any number of ways, specifically gender dysphoria, how you treat them. How, do, do you accept their sin or do you reject their sin? Do, do, you, do you call them by the pronoun they asked you to call? Maybe it's a, a brother. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a, it's a, it's a cousin. What, what do you do? How do you do it and bring glory to God? Right? And then I want you to think on... The, the, the macro level, the, the much larger level. Those, those that we may influence or have influence over that we will never know personally. Maybe it's because of social media. Maybe it's in the way that we vote, the leaders that we elect, the way in which we choose to spend our, our money, right? That those things matter too. We, we as, as, as humans, and specifically our context as Americans, like we make decisions that have an impact on how humans flourish or do not flourish. And so we have to think through that. And so first, here's the first thing that I want to say as we're thinking through this, is God can and will save anybody. Don't give up hope. There's no one too broken, too far gone, that cannot be saved. And so we're not looking at the, the, the person who's clearly in some sort of sin and going, God can't save them. But actually recognizing that God can save them, that God can change them. Too often we believe the lie that the Son of Man came to seek and save good people, not lost people. And he didn't. God came to save the lost. And if God can save me, he can save anybody. We need to have... The same disposition as Paul, that, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, which I am the foremost. I'm the chief. And so I'm not going to look at this person over here in their sin, or this person over here in their sin, and think, oh, they're so horrible and I'm so good, that I'm going to see my own brokenness. I mean, Jesus gave, gave great warning, right? Not to, not to look at the speck in somebody else's eye without getting the log out of your eye. And so we're going we're gonna to start with a place in how we treat others by realizing that Christ came to redeem us. Second thing I want us to know is that lostness is the problem. Lostness is the greatest problem in the world. Any, any, of, any of the sins that we've talked about that have come from our broken view of the image of God, any of those sins, Christ can save us from that. It's the greatest problem. 
it, that, that, that sin, it, the root of that sin is a lostness, that it's not found in Christ. And so, lostness is the world's greatest problem, and here's the good news. The gospel is the answer. This is the good news of the gospel, that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. That though, in, in, in our own way, we have rebelled against God. The Bible says that none are righteous, not even one. And so, we have, as we have rebelled against God, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, to take the punishment of our sin, to take the punishment that we deserve. He took it upon. He paid the price for it. And so, that's the good news of the gospel. I would just tell you today, if you're here and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I would invite you to do so. If you're weighted down by the guilt of your sin, I, I would invite you to cast your sin upon Jesus and know that His death, burial, and resurrection were real, were true, and He is standing here willing to take it from you. So cry out to the Lord and be saved. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised His Son from the dead, you will be saved. And so... We need, to, we need to treat people, treat others with a spiritual hope. Acknowledging that they deserve because of who God made them to be, not because of anything that they did. This is the beauty of the gospel, right? It's God's unmerited favor, respect, dignity, worth, value, because of who they are in Christ. How we treat people matters, right? So it, it, very much in the micro, the people around us, but also on the macro. And so here's what I want you to see. The next big idea is we should care about human flourishing. We should care about human flourishing. We should care about what is best for humanity. Doing what is best for humanity. And, and, and let, me, let me give an example of that. In our church, when COVID happened, as, leader, as, as leaders, as we were like wrestling through what to do, Right, as we were wrestling through what was going on in our culture, we, we had to do so from the place of the decisions that need to be made, need to be made for what is best for humans to flourish, not for me to flourish. There can't be a selfishness in it, right? It has to be what's best for humanity, not for me. And so let's, let's just back up to those first weeks when we knew nothing about COVID. And we were somewhat under the assumption that this is going to kill a lot of people, right? And so then it seems like, what's the wise decision? The wise decision is to do whatever we can to stop the spread, right? That, that seemed like a wise decision. What we began to wrestle with as we began to realize this isn't as deadly as we thought, but it is deadly for some, right? It is deadly. What, what are the other effects of this going to be? These are the other things that you have to wrestle with in leadership. Uh, I mean, what, what's this going to do for the kids who are... Not in school, that, that we got to know that oh, childhood rape and incest and those things are going to go through the roof. That um, teen suicide and depression, those things are going to go through the roof. And what's going to happen uh, with, 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 with loneliness of, of older people and uh, economic impact. And when that begins to go, what's going to happen with substance abuse, right? Considering human flourishing is, has to consider a much bigger picture, right? And it's actually complex. So when we, we, when we start looking at the image of God and how God made us to be, 
we start considering what's best for humanity to flourish. Remember, we, we talked about this last week. What's best for humanity to flourish is when our sexuality, when, we, when, when sex is between, uh, in marriage, in, between a man and a woman. That's God's design, and that's what's best. And humanity will flourish when that is the model in which we put forth and live by. And when we break that model, humanity is going to begin not to flourish, right? And man, there's just statistic after statistic. We talked about these, uh, like in, in the manhood in, in the manhood sermon, like when there's not a man in a home, statistically, you're going to see that that family is not going to flourish. When there's a husband and a wife, and they're both married, those families flourish, especially in comparison to the others, right? There, there's a design that, that we live by that comes from God's Word. And so we're not free to reject God's design when our desire points elsewhere. And this is what, what happens with a lot of the with gender dysphoria, with a lot of the other sins that, that are going on in our culture as we embrace the sexual revolution. We're saying that uh, our desire points us elsewhere, therefore we reject God's design. And in our church, we often say this. We say that, that we, we don't want to stand over the authority of God's word. Meaning, we're going we're gonna to stand over it, and we're going to say, well, that author really didn't know what he meant. He didn't live today. We have more knowledge than him. Or, we, we, we kinda, we'll take that part, we'll kick out that part. We like that part, we don't like that part. But rather, that we would live under the authority of God's word. That we would subject ourselves to it. That we would submit to God's word. That we would say that God knows what is best. And so, therefore, we're going to live under that authority. That's, that's God's word. So, hum, humans will flourish when they submit their lives to Christ. I want you to understand that when we submit to God's plan and God's word, so that means as we treat others with respect, dignity, and worth as fellow image bearers of Christ, that means that we proclaim the gospel to them, that we get the good news of the gospel to them, the life-transforming, life-changing power of the gospel to them. Whether it is in the micro, that's to our, our, our kids, our, our neighbors, right, our acquaintances, our strangers, or if it is in things that are in the macro, that are in the, the things that are farther out there, that we would, we would seek to in, embrace and put forth change that is for good for the kingdom of God because it's good for humanity. Now, I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter four if you have your Bible because I'm going to spend I'm going to we're going to spend a lot of time in this text. I'm not going to break down this text. This is actually a lot of text, but I want us to see it. And I'm going to bring out three points from it. Now, this is not like okay, this is like great exposition of Ephesians chapter. Uh, four, but rather, this is just us quickly grabbing three points from this text, okay? And so it says this, starting in verse 11, the Apostle Paul, writing the church at Ephesus, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So here's the big idea I want to draw from this portion of Ephesians 4. 
We must know what the Bible teaches about human flourishing. Verse 14, he says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. I want you to understand, that in, in our culture, in our world, to use kind of biblical language is that people follow the spirit of the age. I want you to understand something. In our culture, the spirit of the age changes daily, it seems like. Just when you try to be uh, progressive enough, hip enough to keep up with the spirit of the age, it changes. You, you can't keep up with it. The very thing, like I, you, you'll hear people say things that were one day okay to say about racism, and the next day, you're racist if you said the thing that you said bef- the day before. Like, it, it's this changing uh, monster. And so, what he says is, no, there's the apostles, the prophets, like uh, the teachers, like they're giving you this, this job that to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of knowledge of the Son of God. There, there is a, a knowledge in our, that comes with faith in this word, in God's word, that will help us, that will keep us from being tossed to and fro. And so, if we're going to care about human flourishing, what, what is determined as human flourishing must come from the Word and not from the world. The world changes. I, I'll tell you, it, where, it, where is our culture's thought process on, the sec, on, on sex, on gender? Where does it come from? It comes from the sexual revolution. That's where, that's where it comes from. We can, we can paint the picture. We can show you in history in America, uh, Europe, how this sexual revolution has changed things. And how it's formed how most of our people actually think about things like gender and sex and, and, and marriage. It's not from the Bible. It's from the sexual revolution. There's, there's tons of people who, who would then conform the Bible to the sexual revolution by twisting of Scripture and, and leaving out parts, right? But, but there's, a, there's a way in which it's happened. Theo Hobson uh, describes stages of a re- revolution like this. Um, he says this, For a full moral revo- reversal to take place, three conditions must be met. So the first is this, What was condemned must be celebrated. So what was once condemned must be celebrated. And so if you think back in the sexual revolution, when you've got, pre-sexual revolution, we're saying sex is between one man and one woman in the relationship of marriage, all of a sudden, sexual promiscuity is being celebrated. Right? So think Woodstock and the things that happened at Woodstock. Those things begin to be celebrated. And so each stage of the revolution, the thing gets to be celebrated. And so think then years down the road, think homosexuality. And so homosexuality was once condemned, but now it's pride. Right now we must push. Now like, no, it's okay to celebrate it. We must celebrate it. So what's once was condemned is now celebrated. Then, the second is, what was celebrated must now be condemned. So now, let's look at those who hold the value of marriage, and let's condemn that. Right? Let's look at marriage. Let's devalue 
uh, God's sexual ethic. Let's, let, let's devalue what God says, and let's actually condemn that. Let's make that harder. Let, let, let's take an attack on those things. And thirdly, then those who will not join in the celebration will be condemned. And so it, it, was, it was, hey, we just want to do this. You just, you just be okay with it. You do you, and I do me. And then it became, no, what I'm doing is right. What you're doing of pushing your thought process, that's wrong. And now it is, no, you celebrate this with us or you're a bigot. That's the stages of a revolution. And that is what's formed for many on the progressive side of things, their thinking. And so I would just, again, remind you that what we must, what, what we must know about human flourishing and what it means for human to flourish, we should take from the Bible. Now, you know, they, they say some pastors like punch left and hug right or hug right and punch left. I'm going to punch both places, right? I just punched the left. I'm about to punch the right. We need to learn from the Bible, not Daily Wire, not Fox News. Ben Shapiro or Matt Walsh or whatever personality does not need to be the person that informs your worldview about sexuality. The Bible should form your worldview about sexuality. And while I like some of those guys, and I'm thankful for a lot of the stuff they, they, they've gone to do, Joe Rogan is not my homeboy. Right? I, great. I'm not doing LSD and, and going on this trip because Joe Rogan says it's the, 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 right, the right thing to do. This is, this is not where we are. We need to learn from the Bible. Our, our, our ethic on the things of the world doesn't, it doesn't need to come from the world and its political agenda for power. Our, our, it needs to come from the Bible. Our ethic, our thinking on human flourishing needs to be informed by God's word. Not a political personality. There has been criticism where people have said, it's a shame that pastors won't stand up and preach the truth, and we've got to use guys, that in, that, like these guys in the political sphere, will stand up and they're brave to do it. And, and I want you to know that's just a false narrative. Because there have been pastors for 2,000 years of the New Testament church who have stood up and proclaimed what's right and what's wrong based on God's word. And I have a stack of books on my desk, and I did not read all of them, but I read pieces in most of them, uh, studying for this sermon series that were written by, guess what, Christian pastors and ethicists. I remember, I mean, I can, I can go back to when I was in college, 2007, hearing a professor throw out an ethics question on the final exam of what to do with a person who's had a sex change who comes to your church and wants to, wants to be saved or join your church. Right? We've been long thinking about these things and working in these things. We just, we just haven't, we've, we've pastured the flocks that are among us. We've done what God has said, it, said to do. And so, just know, we have apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to help equip us, the saints. So, my encouragement would be to show up to church, to show up to those discipleship groups, to open your Bible in the mornings and to read the Bible and to listen to sermons and be informed by the preaching of God's Word and the reading of God's Word. So here's the next thing that we must do. So A, we must be informed. Here comes B. Rather, 
speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him as the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so here's the next big idea is that we must speak the truth in love in order for humanity to flourish. It's God's design. We love because God first loved us. And it is all over in his design of the proclamation of God's word. The proclamation of the kingdom. When we read the Great Commission, we read the stories in the book of Acts. What we see is the truth, God's truth, being proclaimed in love. We do a really poor job of this. As humans, we, either, we, we go to one extreme or the other. Either we come over here and we just have this message of love and acceptance and of embrace, right? And, and, and we, we, out of this place of like, oh, we want to love you, we're scared to tell the truth. Or we come over here and we like, Jennifer, you're my wife, I love you! You know, it's like, that's not going to go over well. Uh, that's, that, that, that's, not, that's not how we, we shout the truth in a non-loving way and we're we're told that we must be compassionate loving kind people and so that when we brace embrace those who are not like us we do so with love we do it so that the love may grow listen the, uh, the loving thing to do isn't to accept sin it's to reject sin but it is to embrace the person and love the, love the person, to share with the person, be willing to tell the person truth, to say, no, this is why I disagree with what you're, you are doing and why this is not what is best for you, why this is not what is best for humanity. This is not what is best for you to flourish. What is, what is God's design and what is best for you is this, and in love, walk through it. And so, when we have to consider the hard questions of, of calling somebody their pronoun, or re- accepting this sin, or that sin, or um, uh, a heterosexual relationship that, though, is in their fornicating, or uh, adultery, or whatever, it's not to in- embrace it. It's to lovingly address it with the truth of Scripture. That's it. It's to see others as image bearers made in the image of God. It's not as judgmental, condemning, self-righteous way of casting judgment on them. It's of self-reflection. It's a knowing. It's, it's like, like I said, it's, it's having that of Christ Jesus came to save sinners, which I'm the chief. It's a place of, of humility, of knowing that. I love because Christ first loved me, that I love Christ not because of something that I did, not because of my merit or my actions or my worth, but because of the goodness of Christ, and he can do that for them too. That, that's the, that's the thro- thought process. So listen to the last part of this. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. We can't accept 
and walk as the Gentiles. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so here's the last big idea. Is that we must live our lives in the new way of life. We spent six weeks earlier this year in Romans chapter 6 talking about the new way of life. That when we have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer us who lives but it is Christ who lives in us. That we are dead and buried and we are raised to walk in a new way of life. That we have crucified the old self with its desires. We've put to death what is earthly in us. We have died We've been buried with Jesus. That's the picture that baptism paints. And we've been raised to walk in a new way of life. And so we put off the old self. And we're renewed by the spirit of our minds. And we put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Because we're created in the image of God. To walk in true righteousness and holiness. Love God and love people. Live out those two things. That's how humanity will flourish. Today we're going to take communion. And communion isn't a ritual. Uh, it's not something that we do to earn salvation, but rather it's a command. It's an ordinance of the church, and it paints a picture and the picture that it paints is one that's very personal. It's one about our new way of life that that God, being rich in mercy, sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. That his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. Paul says it this way. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you, do, uh, as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, the taking of communion is for Christians who've placed their faith and trust in Christ to proclaim the Lord's death over them. To proclaim that they, their sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. And that's why we take it. And so today, in taking it, we're doing so. It's a confession of our faith. It's a confession that we believe that we are made in the image of God and that Jesus is Lord of our lives, that we have submitted our lives and are following him. But he gives us some conditions. He says this. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so for, for the Christian, so there, if you're not a Christian, this is weird because we're li literally doing something that's symbolic of eating someone's flesh and drinking their blood. 
for the Christian, we're saying, no, this is, this, is, this is Christ who died for us, and we're proclaiming his death over us. We're proclaiming that we are followers of him. But we must examine ourselves so that if there's some sort of sin in your life that you are unwilling to repent of, if there is a bigotry that it's really there, or there is some sort of racism or the, uh, the sin of partiality that is there, if there's a sexual sin, a sexual desire that you're unwilling to repent of, don't take this cup. The call, rather, is to examine yourself and to repent, to turn from it. He says this, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so we're repenting, we're turning to Christ. That is, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died, it says. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we were judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So this is us coming to Christ. This is coming. I'm going I'm to ask Andrew and Shannon to come on up and to play as we, we work in this song of response. And this is us uh, today as we sing. I want you to cry out to God. I want you to pray. I want you to, to evaluate yourself. Examine yourself this morning in, in response. And are, are you living like you're created in the image of God? Are you treating others as they are created in the image of God? That's really the two questions this morning. Are you loving the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your, with all your heart, with all your soul, your mind, and all your strength? And are you loving your neighbor as yourself? So, Father... We come to you today thankful for this cup, thankful that, that you submitted yourself, that you, you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins that we may have life. God, we thank you that you are a creator, that you created us in your image. You could have created us in an infinite number of ways, but you chose to create us how you created us. You, cho- you, you chose to give us a soul and a mind and a body and so, Father, we, we thank you for that. And we thank you that while we were sinners and while we have this marred image of God, marred by sin and marred by shame, yet you still loved us enough to save us. And so, Lord, today would you um, be glorified in this act of worship? Would you be glorified in the ways that we live our lives? And, Lord, may we trust your word May we submit ourselves to it, to do what is good for human flourishing, what's good for humanity. And Lord, may it also be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing, reflect, pray, and when you're ready, come up and get the cup. When you get the cup, take it back to your seat. Go ahead and open it up. Take the wafer out and crush it between your teeth. And then at the end of this song, we'll pause and we'll drink of the cup together and then we'll continue, continue singing the last verse.